And regarding being a woman of color, being a black woman, moving abroad, I know there are a lot of resources where they say, go to these places or don't go to these places. We are not a monolith. There's not like a one size fits all. And my path and my experience traveling and living abroad is mine. And it was kind of an extension of who I am and all of those experiences, big and small, significant, insignificant. And so it's not like you can put that on someone else and and they're going to have the same outcomes because they're not the same person. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Flourish in the Foreign, an award-winning podcast that elevates, celebrates, and affirms the voices and stories of Black women living and thriving abroad. I am your host, Christine Job, a Black American woman with Trinidadian roots. Yeah, that is originally from Atlanta, but currently resides in Valencia, Spain. I am not only a podcaster, but I'm also a business strategist who helps Black women and women of color leverage their talents and their gifts into viable and sustainable online businesses, businesses that make them professionally fulfilled, financially abundant, while pursuing thriving lives abroad. It is that time, everyone. Build a Business Abroad group coaching is launching its final cohort of 2022. If you are interested in joining the cohort, I highly suggest you click the link and learn more about the group coaching program. One big difference in the group coaching was that it was a quarterly membership and now it is a flat fee forever. Yes, lifetime access. Well, lifetime of the program. And I made that change because I realized something that was instrumental to my success building a business abroad was and is continuous community. The women that I have met abroad, either here in Spain or all around the world, that have now formed my business community have just been so integral in my success, really, from just helpful words to people looking over things for you, people giving you suggestions or putting you on for newspaper publications or other collaborations that really helped me get to the bag. So I changed this format because I really am committed to grow a community of Black women and women of color business owners who are not only leveraging their own talents and expertise for their own purposes, but also going to be a community that empowers one another and really helps and supports one another. It's really, really important. And I've really made it a goal of mine to help 100 Black women and women of color bet on themselves and really leverage their own talents and their expertise to their own aim, 
right? Build their own assets to support themselves in pursuing a thriving life abroad. If that sounds like you, I definitely want you to consider joining the Build a Business Abroad cohort. If you're already part of my newsletter, you already know all the details, but something that I'm doing differently is this. I am also doing a masterclass, a masterclass in ideation, in going from confusion to idea. Some of you listening may be like, I don't know if I'm really ready for group coaching. I don't know if I have a viable idea. I don't know. It's okay. I have a masterclass for that. I'm going to put on a masterclass to help you really get clear about an idea. I'm going to take you through my methodology that I take all my clients through when we're developing businesses and products for people who already have established businesses so that you can have an business idea. So if you feel like you're not ready yet, that's okay. I have this masterclass for you. Now, this masterclass is going to be live, but it will be available on replay. But I highly suggest you join in the live masterclass, which will also be happening very soon. All the details, however, are only given out to the email list. So make sure you're on my email list, okay? Don't worry if you're like, well, I just heard it now. It's okay. I'm going to be emailing everyone the entire week. <laughs> so get ready. But make sure you're on my email list for all the details. It is time for you to bet on yourself. It is time for you to take your brilliance, your expertise, your experience, and really build and invest in yourself and build something that can be an asset for yourself, for your legacy or whatever you want. It is time to bet on yourself. And I'm super excited to chat with all of y'all in the masterclass or in the Build a Business Abroad program. This award-winning podcast is a labor of love, but labor nonetheless. So I ask all of you to please support this here podcast if you like it, if you love it. You can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash flourish foreign. And of course, make sure you're subscribed to this podcast and you have written a review for this podcast on any of the platforms that you may be listening on. So be it Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever, please rate the podcast five stars and leave me a review. And of course, please do continue sharing the podcast with your friends, your family, your associates, the colleagues that you like, whomever, please share this podcast with them because that is how this podcast grows. All right, on to the next episode. Today's guest is Lisa, and Lisa is a repat currently based in Philadelphia. She spent over 12 years abroad in China and Japan, and her story, I think, is so interesting. We discussed her backpacking adventures in the 90s and how she ended up in Japan, married, divorced, and then decided to move to China, where she became pregnant and had her daughter. And all the interesting details of pregnancy and motherhood abroad. I really enjoyed speaking with Lisa and I really appreciate her candor. And I think you all will as well. But I will let her tell you all about it. My name is Lisa Quattlebaum. I am... 
52 and a half years young. <laughs> I am currently in Philadelphia, PA, and coincidentally, that is my hometown. And I lived abroad for 12 years. I, I grew up in the 70s in Philadelphia, and that was a while ago. <laughs> I, I, I think my memory of my upbringing is one where it was a pretty diverse community. There's a lot of diversity within my family, but there was also a lot of diversity in the neighborhoods in which we lived. We lived in what's called uh, University City and the the kind of perimeters uh, of that. And it's like, I think in many university hubs or university communities, particularly within major cities, it's fairly diverse. And you have a, a somewhat eclectic group of folks from all over, either students, people who teach or somehow are affiliated with the university. And there's there was just a, a sense of learning, a sense of curiosity. It just, it seemed, and at the same time, it seemed just really natural. There was no like performative aspects, just kind of the way people, people lived. I wouldn't go so far as to say that it was always progressive. It was the seventies in, <laughs> in Philadelphia, but it was a bit of like an enclave, I, I guess, of just folks who were open-minded. And so I think from early on, I was exposed to people, artists, musicians, writers, academics, regular folk, people kind of beating to their own, beating their own drum, doing their own thing. And it just, it just seemed like the foundation of my upbringing. I would add that I, I remember there was a TV show called The Facts of Life, and that played a huge role in my idea of what was possible. This show, in case you don't know, is about a bunch of girls who go to a, a girls' boarding school. And I was probably about 9, 10, 11 when the show really gained popularity or when I started paying attention to it. And there was uh, a girl on the show, Tootie, Kim Fields was the actress. And she's, of course, a, a Black woman. And she um, was on the show. There was another woman whose name I totally forget, but her character was Joe. And Joe was the scholarship girl. She was a, a girl from like New York, from Brooklyn or something. And Tootie was not. And so it was refreshing to me that they did not stereotype the one girl of color on the show as being the scholarship kid. And I was very much into this show and the possibility of, for one, going to a boarding school. What would that look like? I, again, it was like this kind of community of folk from different backgrounds. And, and it was in a school setting. And it just really had a great impression on me. And I remember saying to my mom that I wanted to go to a school like that. And she thought it was bananas. She, <laughs> she was like, I don't know what you're watching, but, <laughs> and she said, because at the time she was a single parent and it just seemed basically financially out of her reach. So she 
um, said, well, what is it about that, that you like? Or she didn't quite say it was impossible, but she woke me up to the realities that we were in. And I said that, you know, it looked like fun, you know, and why not? I think that was really my first step to moving outside of like not even just the neighborhood, but outside of Philadelphia and really putting that exploratory mindset to practice. Lisa dreamt of going to boarding school. So I had to ask her if she actually attended. I applied to boarding schools and then I attended Northfield Mount Hermon and I have to give snaps to the organization that facilitated my application and ultimate acceptance into the program. It's called ABC, A Better Chance. I believe that they're still an active organization. And essentially, again, keep in mind, this was back in the day where affirmative action was what we now call DEI initiatives. And so they were very centered on giving students of color, particularly Black students, but in general, students of color, access to educational opportunities that they may not otherwise have. They facilitated the application. It was quite rigorous. They did a lot of evaluating of the kind of person you were, as well as the kind of student you were, and then also the kind of family life and, and community you belong to, and if you be supported, because there were some major changes that could and were likely to happen basically going off, you know, to school somewhere and generally to a community that was vastly different than the one that you were coming from for for whatever reasons. Um, So the long story short is that Northfield was somewhat of the more creative version of some of the other schools in that Massachusetts area, New England area, like Andover, Exeter. And We were a more creative school, a more international school, much more liberal and progressive school. And so it was a bit like Penn, again, I'm sorry, University City in Philadelphia is really pointing to University of Pennsylvania and Drexel University as the main universities in that area. So it was a bit like that again, but younger and very international And the vibe was such from ethos to practice that we were all, it sounds so kumbaya, but we were all equal. There was a work study program. So that was the, one of the school's ways of leveling the playing field. Everyone had work study, whether you were on scholarship or not. And they really worked with a number of organizations, ABC as an example, and other organizations. And I knew that they there were some partnerships that were happening to make the, the everyday living experience as equitable as possible. And uh, I had a great time. I loved it. I loved it. And I think that it was a great um, precursor for me moving abroad because Going home sometimes for the holidays was on the one hand very joyous, but it was a bit of reverse culture shock. Just being out in Massachusetts, just from a geographic and landscape sort of setting, Northfield was 
pretty much in the middle of nowhere. And we had a farm, we had vast landscape fields, football fields. And then even coming back to, to Philadelphia, which is very vibrant and has great natural you know, resources and so forth. It was still, it was a city. So it was like the country mouse, then the city mouse. There was a lot of transitioning and what we would, I think, call code switching as well. And a lot of trying to kind of communicate experience with folks from both environments. So when I'd go to Northfield after a summer trying to explain, not that it was a foreign concept, not that I was the only city kid there or what have you, but trying to explain kind of what my summers were like. And then going home for the holidays and then explaining to family members what boarding school life was like, or in some cases, depending on who I was speaking to, what it was like to have a roommate from Vietnam or having a, a dorm head who spoke French or just basically monitoring your own time and being hyper-independent. It was just kind of a lot of explaining, <laughs> a lot of translating <laughs> of experience going on. I asked Lisa whether she attended university and if she did, if she had the opportunity to study abroad. Well, interestingly enough, before I left Northfield, they had a, a study abroad program and I was keen to do it. I was so down with it. My parents were like, no. In fact, it had been like an ongoing thing with my, my mom and my then stepdad about me moving further away. And if I could just go back to when I was applying to Northfield, there was this little form we needed to fill out about how far we wanted to go, basically. And I remember it was local, regional, national, and then international. And I ticked the international box. And my, my mother had a bit of a heart condition and I seriously thought she was, she was just going to pass out, right? And she was like, and that's when she said, Lisa, I don't think so. I, 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 I'm with you right here. I'm already being stretched to my emotional capacity to send my kid off, but abroad, I don't think so. And I said, okay, all right. I mean, granted, I was 14 then. And I was like, okay. But I had it in the back of my mind that at some point, Lisa was going to leave the U.S. <laughs> so it was a bit of a foregone conclusion that I would wind up living abroad. So I was not able to convince my parents to uh, let me go on a year abroad or semester abroad through Northfield, through my boarding school. So I did go to university. I'm a bit of a nerd. I like to study. I went to Sarah Lawrence and Sarah Lawrence is in Bronxville, New York. Again, very artsy, very liberal. I also did uh, my master's at New York University. I didn't do a, a study abroad through one, either one of those schools or programs. In the, the middle, in between graduating from Sarah Lawrence and then I returned to do my graduate work in New York, I had actually considered moving abroad to the point where I had applied to an arts program in Israel and I 
was to live in a kibbutz as part of this arts fellowship for, I think it was six months, six months, nine months. And I was accepted. I had my passport. I had everything. And then a family matter came up and I chose not to leave. And it wasn't until after grad school that I finally went abroad. I was pretty determined to go abroad in some capacity. And I think that I had relied on educational systems or pathways as the route. And I, I don't know if it was because that was my comfort zone or if just that was where the opportunities were and maybe the structures that I wanted or needed to kind of framework my journey. I decided to go, I think it was the spring, it was in the 90s. And I, I decided to go to Europe. Everywhere else I had wanted to go, like Israel, I wanted to study in Egypt. I wanted to go to Costa Rica for some other program. And, and again, I would apply, I would get accepted, but then something would happen, and I wouldn't go. And this time I just thought, you know what, I'm going to go and I'm not going to ask anyone for permission. I'm just going to book a ticket <laughs> and do it. So I decided to go to Europe. I flew into Italy, into Rome. And then I was there for almost a month in Italy, but I'd arrange it so that I was supposed to leave out of London. So what I needed to do was to bop around. And then I had a flight from Paris to London. I was going to be in London for a couple of days. And then I was going to leave from London back to the U.S. So I just kind of had to, to wing it for a month. It was very kind of backpackers, hostile kind of travel. I loved it. I loved it. I, I do have to say it's funny when you think about travel these days. Back then, there were those guidebooks where all of the, the hotels and the youth hostels were listed. The internet, I think, had really just started or was about to, to start. And that was a completely different travel game back then. But I, I did something really silly. I flew into Rome on a Sunday. Hello, like nothing's open. And it wasn't until I was on the flight and we were about to land in about 30 minutes. And there was this guy behind me with whom I became really close with. And we kept in touch for years after this. But he was from New York and an Italian-American. And he had been to Italy a couple of times and was going back to, to visit and travel this time alone. And he said, well, where are you going to stay? And I said, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> He's like, what do you mean you don't know? <laughs> and it was then that I realized how unprepared I had been and like how much of a leap of faith I had taken to just get up and go with not even like a hotel reservation. So we wound up backpacking for days and stayed at various places. And then it took me literally like two days to get the hang of this kind of explorer's mindset. And, and then he went one way and I went the other and made it kind of all across 
Europe. So Lisa goes on this European backpacking journey in the late 90s. And so I had to ask her, what was it like for her as a young black woman backpacking Europe at that time? It's funny because I was in my 20s. And again, it's pre-internet. I think most in Europe, and this was like Italy, France, uh, Switzerland, primarily, I was perceived as, well, first, in certain parts of Italy, folks thought I was an African immigrant. And it was just interesting, particularly having done my DNA thing, where folks thought I was from (laughs) and what my actual ancestry is. But it was, I was sort of exotified a, a bit when they realized I was American, then it was almost like, oh, okay, all right. And that was notable to me. I remember having one conversation with someone who thought I was from Somalia. And then when he realized I wasn't, that the the tone was, was different. It was more favorable. And I asked him about that. I don't remember all the details of the conversation, but clearly there was an immigrant issue that I had sort of stepped into. And somehow being American was higher up on the immigrant visitor chain than being from Africa. And that was disheartening. But I don't think at the time I really had a full understanding of all of that to to kind of engage in a lot of conversation with him. And I think also, and I was more I was more in the moment of ensuring my own safety as, of course, a woman of color roaming around Europe by myself than I was necessarily engaging in a political stance. Um, My survival, I thought, was a representation of my belonging and others like me belonging enough. So now if I were to travel in the same way today, then I would probably approach things differently. But that's where I was at the time. And that's also kind of where the world was at the time. I asked Lisa, what were the types of things she got up to while she was in Europe? What did I do? I went out on a lot of dates, I have to say that. (laughs) I had a good time. I enjoyed myself. And I realized I'm far more of a risk taker than I probably wanted to admit I relied a lot on my intuition once I was in Zurich and I pretty much talked to everybody my whole trip. You have to have a little bit of a hustle, particularly then when, when youth hostels and that sort of thing were were more, that was sort of the standard. So it's like, Oh, well, do I get a single room or like, who do I buddy up with or this and the other? So you kind of, you you have that kind of ability to assess, is this somebody that I want to be hanging out with or I want to be in close proximity with or do I want, can I, can I trust, quote unquote, or is this somebody that I totally need, need to steer away from? I thought my good people, safe people radar was pretty good. And thus it kind of allowed me to drop my guard a bit and to be more open to talking to folks to, as they say now, like hanging out with the locals as opposed to just other expats and or travelers in the community. 
Anyway, I was in Zurich and I was walking around up and down hills and so forth. I was fairly bored to tell you the truth. And so I bumped into somebody, oh, where are you going? Where are you from? That sort of thing. And he invited me to take a coffee. And I said, okay, all right, sure, great, right? So we're walking a bit, we're talking, everything feels fine. And then we start walking toward a, a park. And I said, where are we going? And he said, oh, the cafe is in there now. I live in New York. There are tons of like pop-ups in Central Park or in various parks and so forth. So it intellectually seemed perfectly okay to me. But as we got closer, I don't know, I had this like funny feeling. And the funny feeling was like a voice that just said, Lisa, if you go into that park, you're not coming out. I just thought, wow, it just stopped me cold in, in my tracks. I said, you know what? I, I think actually I'm going to head back or whatever. There's, I gave him some excuse and, and he looked disappointed. And there was something in his eye where I kind of thought, yeah, I don't know. Right. And we parted ways and, and I was safe. But as I got further away, it, it just, it really um, struck me how potentially close I came um, to a really bad experience. And, and it saddened me a bit. I think probably I, I felt like pig pen with this like dark cloud kind of hovering over, over me for, for at least the rest of the day where I started to maybe second guess some of my engagements or just kind of think, was that silly? Was that crazy? Like, girl, like get it together. Your street smarts are, you're losing them here and, and so forth. Even though it was that intuitive sense that had protected me from going into the park, but I became a little more cautious. I was fortunate that there weren't many of those kinds of experiences. So I could safely remain kind of open-hearted. So I asked Lisa to tell me in general what she was up to after she returned from her backpacking journey and what happened in her life that led her to her eventual journey abroad. I came back to the States and I, I did a lot of international dating in <laughs> the U.S. I think most of my boyfriends after that were people from, from abroad, a, a Russian. Some of them were not even really worth mentioning. But, but anywho, I kind of, I think, carried that, that explorer mindset into my day-to-day -day living in the States. Now, keep in mind, I live in New York City. So I finished grad school. I stayed in New York City and just like you can't spit without <laughs> it landing on somebody from somewhere else. I, I finally made it to Israel and that was an amazing experience. I thought about staying there and actually there was, I think, a series of events that happened that led to me ultimately moving abroad. One was 9-11. I was in New York when that happened and the vibe of the city changed. It just didn't feel as right anymore. To me, I think we were the whole country, but particularly New York City, we were in trauma. We were suffering from some serious post-traumatic stress and trying to navigate that. Then 2002, I went back to Europe. I was a part of uh, a project called the AIDS Ride. Again, it was 
the late 90s, early 2000s, these charity events like running marathons, doing rides across the country, in this case was 10 days across Europe, so many miles. So I was a part of that. Then I went back abroad to this time to Israel. And it was on route back, I believe it was the fall of 2003, because I went for the Jewish holiday there and coming back. And I remember anytime I had left New York City and came back, be it plane, train, automobile, any kind of way, it was the entry point into the city where I just lit up, where I felt like, yes, I'm home. Ironically, being not originally from New York City, it always felt more like home to me than Philadelphia did. And this time, I didn't have that feeling. And I thought, hmm, maybe I'm tired. Maybe I'm jet lagged. So I flew in but I now had moved and I lived a little bit Central Park South and the subway stop that I would, I would get off on to then walk home was Columbus Circle. Columbus Circle is literally the center of Manhattan, but it's also incredibly busy. You've got Lincoln Center over there. You've got the park over there, Broadway there. And I remember coming up out of the station and just not feeling it, just not at all. And I knew then I'm like, I no, mm-mm, no, it's time to go. At this point I was teaching and I had a lot of side gigs and side hustles and so forth. So I really didn't have anything holding me to the city in a really complicated kind of concrete way, like a great job with a great salary, with a 401k or something like that. And a friend suggested that I start teaching English, ESL. And I thought, oh, okay. I remember getting a a gig at a university that was a bit outside of New York City. I did that for, for like the next six months, I think. But about two months into it, That same friend said, well, if you're teaching folks English, you might as well teach them English abroad. And it was as if like I had never heard of such a thing. (laughs) It was like really like a newsflash to me. I thought, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, I hadn't thought of that. And just like the doors opened the possibility. So I became certified and I started to apply everywhere. I got a number of job offers to do some projects. One was actually in Hong Kong to work with a film company, edit their scripts. Um, But that one seemed a little too temporary. And and again, it didn't have this kind of structure that I didn't want to maybe admit that I kind of need it for a longer stay, but I applied everywhere. I looked Germany, Russia, all over Asia, and finally was accepted by an organization that had a great contract with Japanese universities. And they wanted to hire me to do that. Also, because I was an arts person, I had graphics design and media design. They wanted to bring me on to help with some of their marketing collateral. And so I was hired for that. And boom, there you go. That was it. And so literally, it was like six months later, I was 
selling all my stuff on Craigslist, <laughs> packing my bags and moving to, to Japan. Hey, I hope that you are enjoying this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. And if building a business, if having your own business has been part of your vision of a life well lived for quite some time and you haven't been able to really make it happen, or perhaps you aren't as profitable as you'd like, or perhaps you're not sustainable like you would like, like you would need to be to live abroad. I invite you to join my Build a Business Abroad group coaching program. You can learn more about me as a business strategist and more about the program at my professional website, christinejobe.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-E-J-O-B.com. And of course, there'll be links to all of this information in the description of this episode. All right, back to the show. Lisa moved to Japan. So I asked her to tell me about that move, about settling in and living in Japan. How did she adjust? What was it initially like for her? Well, it's funny because there's that phrase about moving forward and trusting your intuition or trusting the universe. The universe always has your back. And, and there's these two images that come to mind where the point is to kind of move forward in, with intention, but also to have faith. And so there's the idea of you're driving down a dark road and your headlights can only make visible like 200 meters in front of you, right? And then there's the other image of someone walking across a tightrope. And when you look down, you realize, oh my gosh, like, why am I up here <laughs> on some teeny tiny rope trying to get from A to B? But when you look forward and you just focus on each step, step by step by step, you eventually, hopefully, fingers crossed, make it to the other side. And I think that I was so focused sometimes on where I ultimately knew I wanted to be but was only looking step by step, 200 meter by 200 meter to the point where I, I didn't think, oh my gosh, like, isn't it serendipitous that before moving to Asia, I was doing marketing for a restaurant company and it's a French Vietnamese restaurant company. I was working with huge teams of people who were Asian. And so being one non-Asian person in those spaces and being a Black woman in those Asian spaces was normal to me. I was studying Shintoism just because, you know, I was. <laughs> I had studied religious philosophy as well as the arts when I was at Sarah Lawrence. And again, I'm in these spaces where everyone's Japanese with me. So there was a lot of preparation so when I finally got to Japan, it wasn't as much of a culture shock as everyone thought it would be. And I had never assumed that it would be, but not having really considered that all the experiences had led up to that. So in contrast to folks who are like hyper into Japanese language and manga and all of that, and then they decide to intentionally move to Japan because they want to further explore those interests. I was somebody who had 
interests that just happen to be rooted in Asian culture or this, that, or the other. And then just kind of by the stroke of the universe's decision-making <laughs> and my kind of going with that wound up in those spaces, uh, wound up in, in Japan. It was probably only like a handful of times that I really became aware that I was in a sea of <laughs> people who didn't look like me. The language and my Japanese is horrific, but I didn't find it as challenging as some of my contemporaries did. Again, there were these structures. There was like, I was working at a university. So there were people there who spoke English. There were people there who were accustomed to having gaijin, foreigners there. It wasn't like I was this pioneer coming from the Americas. Everything that you want here, you can pretty much get there. I was frustrated sometimes, of course, because I couldn't understand things, but I just went on about my business. Actually, my, my life was pretty similar to that in the US, not so much the day to day and cultural stuff. But I moved, I think, four times. And I did it all by myself. Even the point of going in talking to the realtors and signing the contracts. I mean, what would normally take someone 30 minutes took us like two hours. But like I did all that. I bought my laptop there. It was all in Japanese. <laughs> I bought my phone there. I Certain things I had helped with, like setting up utilities and things like that. For some reason, that was way beyond me. But other things, yeah, I figured it out. And I had a great group of friends there, Japanese, as well as like other foreigners, other expats. And I even got married there. I got divorced there. I changed jobs there a couple times. It did feel like home. I lived in Hiroshima. Hiroshima is very rich in history and connected to American history with the bomb. I was there for about six and a half years. I did think of staying there after my divorce or like kind of leading up to my divorce. I thought maybe it would be best to leave Hiroshima so I looked at other cities and just things weren't clicking. So then I could sort of cast it my net much broader. And I then found a great role in China. I had been to China a couple of times in my travels because when, when you're in Asia, it's sort of like being in the States. Thailand is like going to New Jersey or something. It's Everything's very close proximity. So I had traveled around Asia quite a bit and I thought, okay, I could stay here. For some reason, I was wanting to go back to Israel. Europe, I was less interested in. Even looked in the Middle East, but as a single woman, there were so many limitations that I just thought that wasn't really the, the place for me. So I wound up in China and was there for uh, about five and a half years. So Lisa already told us that she got married in Japan and divorced in Japan. And so I had to ask her, well, Lisa, how was the dating in Japan? And what was it like getting married and divorced in Japan? I appreciate you wanting to, to talk more about that or ask more about that because I think particularly for women, that's something that whether you say it or not out loud, you're kind of wondering, like if you're a single person, you're going abroad, am I going to find 
love there? Am I going to find friendship? Am I going to find companionship? Am I going to be perceived as being attractive? Is it going to be safe for me? And so those are legit questions. When I first moved abroad, <laughs> I hadn't given it two minutes of thought in all in all honesty. And I thought it was hilarious that I would wind up getting married while I was there. And then consequently having my daughter while I was abroad. Uh, a friend of mine asked me literally the day before I flew out, she said, well, who are you going to date? And I'm like, people, men? And she's like, but what kind of people? I said, I don't know. What do you mean? And she basically was saying, are you okay with dating Japanese guys? And I was like, well, oh, I hadn't thought of that. But like, I date everyone else. So why not? Right. And so and that was sort of my answer. And my ex-husband is actually Canadian, blonde haired, green eyed Canadian. But I did date a Japanese guy for a little bit. But again, that was me. And that was just me being open. And I think because my ex- husband and I are, we're both foreigners, meaning not Japanese. Some of the, the rules didn't really apply. And because he and I were from different countries, again, there were some special circumstances and modifications to our marriage and divorce that needed to occur. So that's something to keep in mind. If you're marrying somebody or you're entering into a relationship beyond just dating, like if you're going to be living together, if you are going to be getting engaged, getting married, having children together. I I think on the one hand, it's worth the time to really think about it in very practical ways, really go through best worst case scenarios, have contingency plans, know what your rights are, know what the cultural norms and expectations are, know what you need to do legally to protect yourself. I made what I thought later on, particularly having my daughter, were some very smart decisions, which were, they were smart, but if I could go back, I would do them smart differently. When we got married, we, we actually got married in a bamboo forest (laughs) and a good friend of mine officiated the, the ceremony. And so I think on some levels it was legal, but it wasn't legal in Japan. And so in order to legalize our union, we had to apply for for like a marriage permit through the Japanese system, the registry, whatever whatever it is. And in order to do that, we had to get two people, and I think it was they needed to be married people. Not necessarily. We found a couple <laughs> that were married to each that were actually married to each other to do this. We were very efficient with the paperwork. One person had to kind of had to vouch for me. One had to vouch for him. And one, at least one of those persons had to be Japanese. The other person I think could be a foreigner, but they needed to have been there for so many years, maybe have residency. Like it couldn't be my friend who came over just to do the wedding. It had to be somebody who was rooted in, in Japan. And so they needed to 
vouch for us. I think there was some other paperwork we had to do that I just blocked out. And so we were actually married in June, but we weren't officially considered a married couple until December when we finally got around to doing all the paperwork and then filing it with the offices. Actually, we got married technically on Christmas Day because they don't celebrate Christmas in Japan. So the offices were open. And it was very matter of fact, like, here you go, sign, 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 stamp, 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 boom, you're married. Oh, that's it. Thanks. Okay. Now, once we were legally married, then it gave me rights as his spouse, He had a medical issue, so I had rights to make some decisions on his behalf and power of attorney, things like that. We always kept our accounts separate, and I never changed my name. I would sometimes hyphenate it because sort of culturally, they wanted to be able to recognize that I had made this transition. But legally, with regard to my paperwork, my passports and stuff, I was like, I am doing all that. Nah. <laughs> so I just kept everything the same. And my last name is far more interesting than his was. So I was I was keeping it. Also, with regard to property and stuff like that, we had rented an apartment that was, was a benefit of my position in this particular school. I was now teaching in an international school. And so he had to sign on as a tenant. This was great because when we broke up, it made him actually legally um, responsible for half of the rent. And when we got divorced, at first, we just went into the Japanese office and we filed for a divorce. That was way easier than getting married. We didn't need anyone else's input. However, because I was planning to then leave the country as part of preparation for that, I remember going to Kyoto and I had to go to the embassy there and get some documents signed. So I asked if I needed to have a letter of divorce, a divorce decree or something like that. And the American, the folks in the embassy asked me if I had gone through a kind of mediation, like a process for like foreigners, basically, or if I had just done the paperwork in the regular Japanese office. And when I told them that I had not gone through that process, they advised me to do so because keep in mind that there was like the military bases there and where I lived was like about an hour away from Iwakuni. So they had found, unfortunately, that a number of American military folk, particularly who had been stationed in Japan, had gotten married or had children, whatever, and then divorced, that when they returned abroad, because they hadn't gone through this American style divorce process, they were not not actually considered legally divorced. And so they could not remarry. And they had to return to Japan and go through this process. And it was a big pain. So that's what we did. And I've only been divorced once. So (laughs) I don't really know how the experiences vary, but we had to both state our, our reasons for divorce. We had to file divorce papers. We had to go in. We had to actually talk to a committee. And I don't remember kind of really why. I think they just wanted to, they value marriage culturally, and they really wanted to ensure that 
we were ready to part ways. We had no children. So it, there was no issue with that. We didn't have any property or anything like that. So it was just several hours. I had a lawyer. <laughs> he didn't. Yeah, it was, it was stressful, but it, it wasn't the worst experience I've had in my life. Lisa gets divorced and she decides to move to China. And it is in China where she gets pregnant and has her daughter. And so I asked Lisa to tell me why she moved to China and also to share with us how and why she decided to have a child in China. Now, when I moved to China, I then, quite frankly, I met someone who was sort of a rebound, I guess. I was newly divorced, whatever. And we decided to have a child together. There were some medical issues that kind of forced that hand with me getting pregnant. I was in my 40s. And so the window of opportunity to conceive was becoming um, narrower. And so we decided to move forward with that. He's not Chinese. He's a European and we were not married, not living together. We were in a, a relationship, but I later realized after my pregnancy that his availability was not what it had been presented to be. So having my daughter in a foreign country was interesting. That was far more interesting than getting married and getting divorced. <laughs> but I was fortunate, again, to be in a place where the one baby policy it was still very much in play. It was only toward the end of my being there that they began to reconsider that and make concessions. But here I am, this older American woman single having a baby. And I was pretty much like put on a perpetual lily pad through the whole experience. I was taken good care of. And having a baby wherever you are can be challenging. I was just really happy to have a team of folks who I trusted and who their approach and values were in alignment with mine. And it was a great pregnancy, great birth, daughters thriving. Also, because being in China, I think, versus having, say, her in Japan, I was, as a single parent, able to hire help. And so I basically had a nanny. Now, nannies, IEs, they call them, which really is like a term for, like it means auntie, are pretty commonplace in Asia, but particularly in China. The auntie or the IE is, can be anywhere from a family member to someone who's not affiliated with your family that you hire from outside of, of your family. Someone who comes in and who looks after your children, your house and home. I had a wonderful, I wonderful. And again, I was really, really lucky. This is just me not really knowing what I'm doing. <laughs> and at some points is going, oh, dear God, please let me find somebody who's bilingual, who I can feel good about leaving my child with, because I don't know how I'm going to do this otherwise. And she showed up and she became like family to us. But if that were not a part of that culture, then having her, particularly as a single parent, would not have been possible. I asked Lisa to speak more to what her pregnancy was like 
while living in China. The care in China was quite good with regard to being pregnant, birthing. It's more common in China, I think, to do C-sections. And what I found to be actually more challenging for me was having so many people, words in my ear, so many voices in my in my head, mostly coming from other foreign women and like, oh, are you going to have a natural birth? Are you going to do it this way? Are you going to do it that way? Are you going to whatever? And are you going to breastfeed? Are you going to, there was so much of like what I was, what are you going to do? How are you going to do it? You should do it this way and don't let them this and don't let them that. And I have to tell you that like, it was, it was just my, and again, largely because of the context of the relationship that I was in, my biggest priority was and and still is my daughter's safety. Just while I was pregnant, ensuring that I was healthy, that she was growing healthily, that, yeah, when it came to, to birthing, I was like, just get her out fine. <laughs> Like, please, do I get points for having a natural birth? No? Okay. All right. I intended to, but it just, it, it, again, pointing back to some of those medical issues that prior to conceiving, and it was during the birth that they, they became more relevant. They weren't problematic during the pregnancy, but they showed up in concerning ways during the birth. So I had a C-section and I was fine with it. She was healthy. I was healthy. Let's move on. Other folks had issue with it, but but I kind of figured, well, that's you have your own babies your own way. <laughs> I just didn't care. And I think that that's something I learned uh, or like a, a kind of aspect I fine-tuned more so living abroad is that you're always going to have folks telling you what you should and could do. And a lot of it's going to be bureaucratic. You need to have your visa. You need to like change this. You've got 90 days to be here or you've got to modify that or like what you learning the laws and the social codes, just essentially navigating the social contract of kind of where you are as a woman, as a foreigner, as so many other things, right? As a worker that at some point you've got to cultivate a sense of good judgment discernment, decision-making, and really be careful and particular about who you have in your inner circle and who you have as part of your advisory kind of committee. Who do you talk to? Who do you go to for certain things? Having a really good, having a a good resource of of help and, and support doesn't mean having a lot of people. It just means having the right people there. And I was fortunate to have the right people, people who weren't just going to tell me what I wanted to hear, but people who through their experience and through their values and their knowledge or whatever were going to guide me and or support me as, as needed. Ultimately, there were choices that I needed to make and that I needed to then own. I got very good at being my own counsel. And so I had a C-section that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, but I didn't care. And medical care is great there as it was in 
Japan. I lived in Guangzhou. Guangzhou is one of the third largest cities. Uh, I think it's Beijing, then Shanghai, then Guangzhou. I asked Lisa why did she decide to not only leave China, but to repatriate back to the United States. I was always going to return to the states, particularly after having my daughter. The when exactly and the how exactly was not always very clear. I did communicate to my daughter's father and to our attorneys that my contract was up by a certain time and that I would be moving back to the states. Now, what I had the option to to renew my contract or to go elsewhere, but I I felt that that was we would probably come back here, if not. Permanently, then as a kind of interim, before going off somewhere else, and that was largely because she was at an age she was, I think, three and a half when we moved back to the states, where she needed to, and I intuited and felt that she needed to be with family, to be with her grandparents and her cousins. So we came home. She had already visited here many times, so it wasn't a f- foreign place to her. So we moved back. It was hard. It was 2016 in the summer. I had a few months left of, of Obama. I was very excited about that, <laughs> and then I anticipated a different outcome with the <laughs> election. I was still kind of like in this daze of like letting the dust settle, of being here, and kind of adjusting to being able to understand conversations. You know, when you're on the subway or in Somewhere and people are like talking in their phones on speaker, like they're on the Real Housewives of somewhere, and stuff, and just being able, just being jarred by that, or or overhearing conversations that you can actually understand and realizing, oh my gosh, like that's so private. Why are you having that conversation in the middle of Target? I was glad in a way that I could stop. I could speak more English, or I could speak more Chinese rather, because my daughter at the time was fairly bilingual, and to support her in her mother tongue, I was discouraged from speaking other languages other than you know English. So it was nice to finally be here and to know that she had that language support from others, so I could speak whatever I wanted. It was hard coming back. I mean. The United States has a lot of issues. Has not unique to United States. I mean, because colonialism, slavery, oppression is global. Okay, so we cannot get that twisted. It's not just an American problem; it's a global problem, and it's one that is cannot just be kind of siloed to a period of time. It's ongoing, and I saw it. With fresh eyes,、um, it was so dehumanizing. It was just that's. I think that's kind of what I what I felt being back here, like it was a culture of dehumanization. I don't know. It was it was quite challenging. I didn't want to drive. A lot of the experiences and feelings I felt after nine eleven, like that subtle depression. Kind of, I could see that happening、um, when I, while I was here. Fortunately, because I could recognize it, I was able to avert it. But nonetheless, there was just cause to be sad and to be frustrated and. 
to want to like get my passport out and go back, go back abroad as soon as I could. But I stayed. I asked Lisa, what is her personal definition of wellness and how had that definition and concept and practice really evolved during her time abroad? Well, it's funny. The first thing that comes to mind is this YouTube channel that (laughs) I'm working on that's about kind of cultivating a well-curated life. And it kind of came to me, or rather I realized I, I, I plan, I, I do happy planning and, and bullet journaling and all of that. And I realized, particularly in the last couple of years, while I've been doing this sort of thing my whole life, again, I'm an arts person, so I've always had a workbook, a sketchbook, a creative journal or, or something like that, that it's part of my self-care to take dedicated time to really look at my life and look at what I'm putting in my life, what activities, what people, places, things, how I'm structuring my my time. And the act, the process of quote unquote planning or curating my, my life is an act of wellness for me as much as the, again, the people, places, activities, things that I put into that plan. I'm very spiritual. Um, so taking time to have what I call like my spirit goddess time is very important. I meditate, but I don't think I meditate like the way Pinterest would say you meditate. I feel like I'm in a constant kind of waking meditation, continually tapping into like higher thought, higher being, being intuitive, slowing down. I do enjoy a good coffee and a good glass of wine. So taking pleasure in those little things, eating well, spending time, lots of play with my daughter. That's really, really important to me as a big part of my wellness. And I think also modeling to her that adults do play too. Those are all parts of my my wellness. I asked Lisa to share with all of you some advice about moving and living abroad. And this is what she shared. I could say a lot. Know yourself, know who you are, know what your comfort zones are, know what your priorities and your values are, and use those as like a, a, a compass to point you in the right direction. If meeting someone, building a family is very important to you, or your ideas of what family looks like is very specific, then look to places to visit or ultimately to move to that are compatible with that. Don't put yourself someplace where <laughs> where there's going to be some friction, or there's going to be like a, a, a clash. Life is far just too short to do that, and I think also then allow yourself to test drive, to to try out living abroad in whatever way works best for you. If you, if that means going for three months and then coming back and then saying, I really like that. I think I'm going to give it another go. If like you need to take these extended holidays or these sabbaticals or something like that, if you need to have a kind of framework 
to guide your moving abroad, then own that and then dig deep to reflect on that, to identify that and to respect that. There's no right or wrong. There's just what's right and wrong for you. It took me years to realize that I needed a framework before making that leap. I don't feel like I need it now. Know your sense of security and your sense of safety and respect that. I think also this is a a bigger, more global kind of issue or two points to be made. One is that the idea of home, I think, is really changing. And so home and family are, are, are just their concepts. And as much as work is now becoming this very fluid concept. So that's great. Like you can design your life and those core factors, work, home, family, the way that works for you in the season that you're in. And regarding being a woman of color, being a black woman moving abroad, I know there are a lot of there are lots of resources where they say, go to these places or don't go to these places. We are not a monolith. There's not like a one size fits all. And my path and my experience traveling and living abroad is mine. And it was an extension of who I am and, and all of those experiences, big and small, significant, insignificant. It's not like you can put that on someone else and and they're going to have the same outcomes because they're not the same person. You remember the show, A Different World? I was kind of like a Freddie, that kind of like crunchy person, a little hippie, a little open, but she turned out to be a lawyer. She could be hardcore, high functioning hippie. And then there was like Jalisa and there was Denise and there were all these women who fit these external indicators as being black women and stuff, but they were all very, very different. And they came from different places and they were going in different directions. So know yourself, know yourself as a black woman, as a woman of color and like walk your journey and be respectful. And in doing that, be open and respectful to other people doing theirs because we need that. We need each other. That's part of the sisterhood. It's like, not that we're all clones of each other and we're all constantly in agreement, but that we support each other and we care for each other and we help each other where needed. Thank you so much, Lisa, for sharing your story. I think so many people are going to find it not only relatable, but also really informative. If you want to keep up with Lisa, you can via social media. Let's see. It depends what you're interested in. (laughs) No, I I think probably the home study stuff is a digital magazine and we're actually in a state of transition. And then there's a city schoolista. If you're a mom or a female guardian and you have a child or children who are between the ages of eight and 13, the city schoolista is a great resource for social action products with really great, cheeky, smart, kid and adult friendly messaging and illustration and a series of workbooks 
that guide you through the process of exploring general and then some very specific social justice issues using your city as a kind of provocation for those conversations and activities and engagements. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Lisa's story and have taken her advice to heart. But also, I would like to mention, you know, an aspect of her story does involve getting married and getting divorced abroad. And she touched on some of the different circumstances that you go through that you don't necessarily go through, at least the United States, to both get married and divorced abroad but also having children abroad and all of the, we'll say, issues (laughs) that can arise by having, you know, a multinational relationship and all of those types of things. I hope that you all think about that. I'm hoping to bring more information really addressing those things because it's not all just dating abroad, y'all. You know, it's a lot. Anyway, thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please consider supporting the podcast by buying me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash flourish foreign. Be sure to send me a voice note. Yeah, I'd love to hear from you, either just your thoughts about the podcast or you can ask me a question and I'll try my hardest to answer it in the Ask Me Anything episode that is coming up in a few weeks. Be sure to record it just on your phone and send it to me at hello at flourishintheforeign.com. And if you're interested in joining the next cohort of Build a Business Abroad, be sure that you're on my email newsletter list, okay? Thanks to Zachary Higgs, who produced the music of this podcast. And remember, it is not about moving abroad. And it can't be just about being abroad on vibes. It's about thriving abroad. So go abroad and cultivate a life well lived. See y'all next time. Bye. On the next episode of Flourish in the Foreign. I don't want you to feel strange or like somehow you're doing it wrong if you go abroad and you're like, wait, soft life didn't just befall me. No, it's a cultivation. It's a cultivation, y'all.